We'll be Kinter 2 today. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verse 28 through 33, but we'll, of course, start a little earlier. We'll be looking, reading 1 John 2.18 through 3.10. So let us read the word of the Lord. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, had, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know him, does not know us, is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not been yet appeared, not yet appeared. But we know that when when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So we come today to this little passage where it talks about our preparation, our our being ready for the appearance of the Lord. And it's a great encouragement to us to fix our thoughts on that as we're thinking of the Christian life and of the struggles that John has talked about. Uh, John has talked about the struggle with sin, the struggle with loving our brother, the struggle with worldliness, and how we need to overcome those things to have confidence in the Lord. And now he's telling us that when he appears, we need to have that confidence. We need to be ready for that appearing, that coming, by abiding in him. And we saw last week, and we've seen many times, that that abiding in him is a, is a central theme, really, in our New Testament Christian walk, Christian life. We can't do anything if we don't have that deep personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. John 15:4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you abide unless you abide in me. We have that relationship that goes back and forth. We are in him, he is in us. If that is true, we really belong to him and we can produce much fruit. If that is not true, then we cannot do anything. And as believers, we will abide in him, and not just in him, but in his word, as we've been seeing here in 1 John. In John 8, verse 31 and following, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so our abiding in him, abiding in his word, is about what we've been talking about here in First John, about living our life in Christ, in obedience to him, in the light with him, walking as he walked. And if we have been abiding in him, we have been abiding in his word, we are walking in the light with him, then we can have confidence at his coming. Now the word used at the end of this first verse, his coming, is that word parousia that we may have heard before. The, the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord. Uh, it's a technical word in Greek. It was used in that day to describe the official welcome of a visiting newly arrived dignitary. And the people would go out, they would meet the dignitary, and escort him back into their place, to the city or to the building that they were going to. And... That proper escort was what the, the arrival was all about, the coming was all about. 
And so we see that in the New Testament when it talks about Jesus coming, his second coming. Probably the most detailed place we see this is, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we want to have this in mind when we think about his return, his coming. In 1 Thessalonians 4:13 and following, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For in this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are left alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so you can see the idea. The Lord comes. He has with him the souls of the dead. Their bodies rise from the grave. They are reunited. And we all take welcome him and bring him. And so his coming, we don't, we have two kinds of people who will be around at that coming. Those who have confidence and those who shrink back. We want to be ready for his coming. We want to be able to have confidence and we need to do that by having, by abiding in him, by abiding in his righteousness. Now this isn't the arrogant self-righteousness that many men have. Back in John chapter 1, Verse 8, 1 John 1, verse 8. John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Many men thought they had no sin or thought their sin over, their sin was less than their good deeds and they thought they'd be weighed on the balance and if they were a little better, they'd be okay. That was the general theology of the day, particularly with the Pharisees. As long as your good deeds outweighed your sins, you were good. And what were good deeds? Whatever they said they were. They weren't very careful about the scriptures. Jesus talks to these people in Luke 18, verses 9 and following, and we all know the story. He told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he was confident in his self-righteousness because he was not like other men. He was better than them. And because he had a short list, he gave tithes and he fasted. And that was the good. And he didn't do the worst evil. And we see that a lot today. Many Christians will say, oh, I... You know, I don't support abortion. I don't support the LGBT agenda. I'm good. The tax collector, however, stood far off and would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever exalts, humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteous men usually use only a few carefully selected portions of Scripture as their standard. They re- reject and ignore the rest. And that's not the kind of righteousness we need. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Matthew 15, 7 and following, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. We need to have not the righteousness of that Pharisee, but the righteousness of the publican. And that's what John has talked about here in 1 John. In the first chapter, we looked at this a while back. Verses 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. So our righteousness comes from the fact that Jesus' blood cleanses us. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so our righteousness must be that we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ from the sins that we have confessed to him and that we are then holy before him. And that is the kind of righteousness that Paul often spoke of. In Romans 3:22 and following, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so that is this righteousness that we have by abiding in Christ, by having that relationship with him, by confessing our sins to him and our our sins cleansed from us by his blood, that we can then have greater confidence and greater hope in him. And that's what he is talking about in verse 28 of our text. our confidence comes not, as we said, from trust in our own righteousness, but from trust in his perfect righteousness. Romans 9, 30 and following, what shall we say then, Paul says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In other words, they thought if they did enough of the law right, they would be accepted, forgetting that God's standard was absolute perfection. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone, As it is written, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Gentiles got their righteousness by trusting in Christ's righteousness to cleanse them of their sins. The Jews were thinking to achieve their righteousness through obedience, which they weren't doing, and thus they failed. And so our confidence comes not from our doing 
but from our trusting in him and our seeking his forgiveness and his cleansing. And that's really what it's all about to have that new heart in Christ that we've talked about so often. The, the Old Testament promise of being born again in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, that I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a spirit, my spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know, he has taken out that heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, and we will then be careful to walk in his rules. And that is what we trust in his work in us. Paul speaks of this in the beginning of his golden chain of salvation in Romans 8:29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he be, might be the firstborn of many brothers. And so we are being conformed into the image of Christ, the image which we will see face to face one day. And that is then the evidence of our being a Christian, of belonging to Christ. The evidence of our being born again is that this change has been made in our lives and that we see now a new obedience in our, in our life, a new desire for obedience in our life, and a new image that we're being transformed into slowly, step by step. This image of Christ in this transformation is really a key to our confidence. In 1 John chapter 2, earlier in this chapter, the first six verses, he, he speaks about our sin and he's saying, little children, I'm writing you that you these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, that we keep his commandments. Remember when we talked about that passage, I said we, have come, we know we've come to know him because we keep his commandments, not we have come to know him because we keep his commandments. Right? We know we know him. Right? We know we have a new heart because we are keeping his commandments, not we receive a new heart because we keep his commandments. Cause and effect here is important. The Pharisees were seeking it the wrong way. We must seek it the right way through faith. And then we will see a change in our life. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we know him and are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so when John, John here is talking about abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence, he is talking about our, our actions, our life. Our confidence comes from the fact that we see that new life and we are living that new life in him. And that leads us to this greater confidence. Seeing our lives in Christ in that manner gives us that holy boldness that we read about in Hebrews as well. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come with confidence, the same word, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace for help in our time of need. We have that ability to come near to God because we are in Christ. And that same thing is what will allow us to draw near to God when he returns and to have confidence in being able to draw near to him. We don't draw near to him thinking, I'm good enough, because (laughs) when we see all the people in the Bible who have drawn near to God or have drawn near to an angel, what do they do? They fall flat on their face. Why? Because they see their sinfulness and their corruption and they understand the difference. What will our confidence be? Our confidence is that we have been cleansed of those sins, that we are in Christ, that we are walking the way he wants us to, and that we are receiving forgiveness for the sins that we have committed, and we will be able to be with him forever. We have started that great transformation. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8.28 that we read. Of course, if we are not abiding in him, not abiding in his word, not walking as he walked, not walking in the light as he is in the light, then we're going to have some anxiety. We're going to be worried. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine ourselves, see whether we are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize about this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? In other words, that you abide in him and he abides in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We are testing ourselves to see if we fail to meet that test. We've read about these tests in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And these tests are there to help us, to show us. Are we abiding in Christ properly? If not, we're going to shrink away. We may shrink away like Adam and Eve did. You remember? After they sinned, what happened? The Lord comes into the garden. They hear the sound of the Lord, Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they shrink back? Before they walked up to him, oh, you know, they fellowship, they, they had love, they had a relationship. That relationship was broken by sin. Our relationship is restored by the blood of Christ. And we are supposed to be then walking as he walked. How do we have that confidence to be able to approach God? Well, because we are walking as he walks, because we are confessing our sins We are repenting of our sins. We are trusting in the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. All the things John has been talking about in 1 John. And then we can have that confidence to approach him. Not to shrink back. Say, oh, God's here. I'm in trouble. Uh Uh-oh, here's the boss. Let me slip into the back room. We we laugh. We've all been there. Here's mom. Uh Uh-oh. Here's dad. Make myself scarce. Or do you walk up, big hug? You know, when Christ returns, we don't want to be the ones who shrink back. We want to be able to boldly walk up to the one who has saved our souls, the one to whom we belong. That's of importance to us in our lives. The unbelievers, 
Well, we read about them in Revelation 6.15, don't we? The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free. They hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains because the Lord was coming and they were afraid. When we have sins we haven't dealt with, sins we're not repenting of, sins we're paying lip service to repenting of but not really turning from, we may find ourselves in that situation, though, we're like Adam and Eve, we don't want to face God. We don't want to draw near to him. That's why James tells us to cleanse our hands, not be double-minded, but draw near to God. We need to be careful. And thus, the moral tests that God has put down through John in his book are, are very dear to our hearts. And here the moral test is kind of expanded and applied a little bit. We know that he is righteous and that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Proof of being a Christian is not just the outward orthodoxy, but a biblical holiness, biblical righteousness that's born out of our knowledge of God, our orthodoxy, if you will. Now, the very previous section, 18 through 27 of chapter 2, was devoted to reminding us how important biblical orthodoxy is against false teachers, false prophets, and antichrists. But that's not the sum of it, because we still need to walk as Christ walked. We need not just to know how Christ walked. We need to do (laughs) what Christ did, walk as he walked, so to speak. And so here we're reminded of God in his great righteousness. 1 John 1.5, we did cover this a few weeks back or months back. This is a message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. He is perfect in his righteousness, and he expects us to be righteous. And if we are his, we will walk in righteousness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in his works. Psalm 145:17. The proof of our life as a Christian is in the pudding, so to speak. You'll recognize them by their fruits, Jesus says. And we need to remember that. By our fruits, we will be judged. By our fruits, we are known. By our fruits, we can see ourselves. And so all who are born of him make holiness and righteousness not just a goal, but a practice. Second Peter 1, 5 through 8 talks of this. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our walk with Christ is not made perfect the day we're converted. It's made perfect the day we go to be with him. And then our life here, it should be growing in steps by step. 
And we should be able to see that and know that we are with him because of that. And so to be ready for his return, to be ready for his coming, to be ready for his appearing, as it says here, we really need to be working on being like him. And he goes on in the next verse to say, we're already, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we are already children of God. And what we're going to become when he returns is even more awesome. This is an encouragement to us to, to make ourselves ready. It's amazing what love the Father has shown to us. Because we don't really deserve this, do we? Think of what Paul says, his summary of the Old Testament teaching of mankind. Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the ways of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Can you imagine? That is God's view of mankind. When we look back at the great flood, do you remember what he said? The Lord saw the wickedness of man in Genesis 6, 5 and 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Mankind, you and I, our very existence, our sin, grieves him to his heart and he regrets making us. And yet, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. And much more, now that we're reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. You know, it was his choice to love the unlovable, to take us from being enemies, cursed, despised, and wanted to be destroyed by him. And he has made us sons. And this is not, as some suppose, something he did because he saw good in us. Nowhere in that passage in Romans does it say, except some had a little good in them and he chose them. No, there was no good. He chose us, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians chapter 1. It wasn't something that we had done. It wasn't our worthiness. He chose to love the unlovable. And that makes his praise and his glory and his honor even greater. You know, our love for him can be much greater because he loved us when we were unlovable. We didn't deserve his love. And I think that's the great encouragement we get here from this. You know, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That though we deserve to be cast into hell for all eternity, he made us his sons. And he did that. He chose to do that to us before the foundation of the world was laid. We have in him redemption 
to the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What a great and glorious thing to praise his name. And he has given us not just the adoption of sons, but he's given us his spirit. John has spoken of this briefly. Paul speaks of it as well in Romans 8, 13 and following. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For if you did not receive, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How does it do that? Well, because we see a desire to please God, a desire to conform our life to the life of Christ, a desire to keep the commandments of Christ, to walk as Christ walked. And we see that we are doing it a little more day by day, month by month, year by year. And we have hope that he is in us, his spirit. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now it's interesting. He brings up in this passage that the world does not know us. John has covered this in the gospel. Jesus comments about this, such as in John 15, 18 and 19. The world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 16, 1 through 3. I have said these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he was offering a service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And in his high priestly prayer, John 17:14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. They cannot know us because they have not known the Father, and they will hate us for that. And since really our faith, our adoption as sons, our reconciliation with God, our new life in him, all of these things are things we have through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, I think Paul also sheds a little light on this matter. When he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They don't understand what we've received in Christ. They don't understand us. They don't recognize us. The world does not know us, as he says here. And that is relevant for why we are persecuted, why we are struggling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, When Christ appears, he goes on to say, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we will see him as he is. 
This is one of those great and wonderful promises and, and great mysteries that we can't really understand yet. Paul speaks of this often. Romans 8, 18 and 19, he considers the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits eager, with eager longing for the revelation of the Son of, sons of God. What's going to happen to us when we see God? What is going to happen? How we are going to be transformed? It's going to be amazing. We don't know how. We don't know what yet. But we know a little bit, and it is a great encouragement. We are told in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, and from there we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so our lowly body will have a glorious body. Not this old, broken down, worn out one. <laughs> Apparently we'll still be recognizable, but we'll be fixed. And we'll be glorious. Uh, Fisk, I don't have time to read it, but 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49 has a long passage about the resurrection body. Uh, many people worry about that. I remember years ago, my pastor was talking to me about home visitation and doing because he would do visits to encourage people, to, but also evangelistic visits to visitors. And he said he visited an old couple and they were very concerned. They'd been Christians since childhood. They were now in their 80s. They were very worried the Lord wouldn't return before they died. And they were quite concerned about it. And they didn't understand what would happen to their bodies if they died. Uh, we have hope. There will be a resurrection. Our body, whether we die or it is with us when he returns, will be transformed into a glorious body by his great infinite power. We need not fear that sort of thing. We don't know what it will look like. I've heard a lot of speculation, some of them rather fun, but it's speculation. We don't know yet. It's one of those mysteries, those secrets that God will reveal on that day and we'll be amazed and we'll be singing praises to his name for it, I'm sure. Because it will be a glorious and wonderful thing. And in our new bodies, our new perfect bodies, holy bodies, spiritual bodies, we will then see him face to face. Do you remember Job's joyful hope? That after my skin has been destroyed, Job 19, 26 and 27, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. My heart grows faint within me. He had such a great hope in the resurrection to come. He thought he was dying. He was withering away. His sores were eating his body. He didn't think he had much time left. And yet his hope was that one day he would see with his own eyes his Savior, the Lord that he was waiting on. 
If Job could have such hope, shouldn't we? Now we see dimly, as if in a mirror, and not in a fancy mirror with silver backing. We're talking a polished piece of metal in Paul's day. He's writing in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see dimly as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. You shall see and know Christ fully. Are you not excited? Is this not something to get pumped about? The day is coming. It's a good thing to see him, even now. We can be of good courage, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says we would rather be dead and with God. I want to see him now. <laughs> Paul had that hope, that faith. And we should too. We shall all see him face to face. And we shall all face judgment, of course. And thus, our, if we have that hope, that hope in eternal life, as is, that hope is his children, that hope of his coming, when he will restore all things, <coughs> then we should purify ourselves, it says in verse 3. We all long to hear what Jesus will say. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one. you remember the words. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't we long for the day when we will enter into the joy of our master? Right now we live as strangers and pilgrims until we can go to our new home, until we can live in our new bodies, until we can see our Lord and Savior face to face. <coughs> John saw it, the new heaven, the new earth. In Revelation 21, the first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more and the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things are passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, if that is our hope, then we should make ready for it. And this hope we make ready for it by cleansing ourselves from all unrighteousness. As John has said, we do not walk in darkness anymore, but walk in the light with the Lord. From chapter 1, verse 6. We do not remain in our sins, but we confess them, we repent of them. 
chapter 1, verse 7 and 9. We love our brothers, chapter 2, verse 10. We don't love the world, chapter 2, verse 15. In Hebrews 12, 14, we strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. John has told us in this passage, we are God's children. That Christ is coming back for us. And that we can have confidence when he comes to our purity. And that we should prepare ourselves by making our purity, our walk with him, our goal in this life. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great encouragement we take from your word. We thank you for this passage, this promise that you are coming, that all things will be made new, that you will appear, that we will be transformed into our new perfect selves, be with you for all eternity. And Lord, as we work towards that day, encourage our hearts, Lord, to work towards the holiness that you have called us for, that we will not shrink back in shame, but that we will have confidence in that day, that we will be ready for you to receive you, to face judgment, knowing that we belong to you and have striven day by day to grow in our faith and in our grace and in our practice. We ask, Lord, your strength to us for this battle. In Jesus' name, amen.